We're up to chapter 2, Mishnah 16. Again, these are the five students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. These are the great Jewish titans of the end of the first and beginning of the second century. As we mentioned, this is a very critical juncture in Jewish history. The temple's been destroyed. The Romans have unleashed fury against the Jews. The Jew, the, the sages at least, are coalesced in a coastal city of Yavne. Uh, they're led by this triumvirate we spoke about last week, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Gamliel, and Rabbi Eliezer. Last week we saw the teaching of Rabbi Eliezer, his very colorful life, his uh, somewhat uneasy interactions with the powers that be in Yavne, namely his brother-in-law, Rabbi Gamliel. Today's character, Rabbi Yehoshua, another very pivotal figure uh, at this time. He uh, is one of the great sages of the Mishnahic era, uh, but also he is one of the great diplomats and statesmen in, in Jewish history. Because there's a heightened interactions with the Romans, Rabbi Yehoshua, his full name is Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania, he is going to be the Jewish representative in many of these interactions and dialogues with the Romans. And in fact, there's, there's a whole uh, list of interactions and debates that the rabbis had with the Romans. And in fact, the, the Romans would even compel rabbis against their will to participate in these very public debates on matters of religion and matters of theology. Again, we're talking about the Romans here who are big-time pagans. You know, they like to collect colonies and deities. And they would, they'd go take over lands and, of course, trying to infuse them with the Roman way of life, standardize things and build aqueducts and roads and bridges and establish taxes and let the local indigenous people live the way they do as long as it has a Roman slant to it. Uh, but also they would kind of constantly amass more pagan deities to the official Roman list. In fact, the Roman historian Deo Cassius writes that the Romans had more than 30,000 official Roman gods. And then they meet these people, an ancient people, a very intellectually oriented people, people obsessed with learning, with knowledge, with ideas. And they have a whole different idea. They have this idea of uh, one god, and all the power is only found in this one original God, and there's no other powers. That's the only power. But this God is also invisible, but still is involved with, with the lives of the petty humans. That, that, that notion was so foreign to the Romans, and uh, we see constantly many, many instances where they're kind of bringing this whole idea up. What is, what's going on? What is this people, this very strange but very intriguing Jewish people, and what do they believe, and let's try to discuss it. You know, the Romans would build stadiums, uh, famously, uh, for uh, sports, but they also had designated locations for debates. And in fact, the Talmud even says that there was a debate, and amidst the tumult of the debate, there was a stampede and a riot and people died or trampled to death. It's like almost what you have by the Argentinian soccer games. Someone loses the game, they go crazy, they, or, you, or you win the game. They burn down half a downtown, flip over cars, set things alight. That's what the Romans did when arguing religion. 
And then they meet these Jewish people with these sages who are just intellectual titans. And they have all these radical, or in their minds, radical ideas. And it becomes, it's very fascinating. And we see countless examples of this Rabbi Yoshua being either beckoned to Rome, interacting with the, with the Caesar. The Caesar actually hired him as a liaison for Jewish affairs. So there's many instances where he's, he's, he's talking with the Caesar's daughter. He's answering the Caesar's questions. Have all these strange things that they encounter with the Jews, they would quickly call Rabbi Yeshua and say, okay, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what the Jewish slant is on, on this issue. So just a few examples that I collected. The Talmud in the book of Chadiga tells that Caesar was overseeing a debate between Rabbi Yehoshua Ben-Hanin, the author of our Mishnah, and some Apikores. Apikores is probably a Greek origin, but it means a heretic. And almost invariably, the rabbis would shy away from these kinds of debates Uh, First of all, the stakes were very high. The loser gets executed. Additionally, the odds are stacked against them. You have the only sole moderator of these debates is invested in you losing. So you're almost handcuffed. If you you win the debate, then you're going against the will of the Caesar. If you lose the debate, then you lose your head. So which option would you prefer? Uh, Pick your poison. So very frequently, they would try to avoid it. Uh, there's one instance where the rabbi said, well, I couldn't make it to the debate. I'm very old. Uh, there was a tree in the way obstructing my, my path. We see all kinds of excuses. And which is why, almost invariably, the debates that we do find involve the Caesar. Because if the Caesar says, debate, you have, really have no choice. You can't shirk that, uh, that option. The Talmud, the book of Hadidah, page 5 B tells us of this very interesting format of the debate. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, the author of our Mishnah, and some Apikoros, unnamed heretic, are having a debate. But what were the rules of the debate? The rules are that it was nonverbal. You couldn't say any words. You only had to use gestures. So one side would say a gesture, and the other side would have to understand what they're trying to Inter- what, they have to interpret what they're, what they're trying to convey and then respond with a gesture. And then it would keep on going back and forth. Good. And then afterwards, the Caesar would debrief, okay, when he did his gesture, what was he saying? And then when you did that, what were you responding? And that's the way it would do it. The loser gets executed. This was a very esoteric form of, of debate that was somewhat common in antiquity. Anyhow, so the Talmud tells what happened. So this uh, Apikores, he starts off the debate by turning his head away from from Rabbi Yeshua, like this. That was his first gesture. And he responded by lifting his hands. That was the critical part of the debate. So afterwards, the Caesar asked Rabbi Yeshua, okay, what was he saying and what did you respond? So Rabbi Yeshua tells him, well, he said, he turned his head away from me, to say God turned his head away from you, which is an idea we see that, the, you know, that God could show us favor or God could turn away from us. He's saying, you guys had your heyday, but now God has turned away from you. You're no longer the chosen people. You no longer have your special role in the world. You guys are on your own. But I stuck up my hands and said, you know, God's always watching us. His hands are always uh, hovering over us to keep to keep, uh, keep an eye on us. That was my response. And then he brings in the heretic, and uh, 
he asked the heretic, well, what were you saying? He says, I was saying, I turned my head away. To say that God turned his head away from Jewish people. Well, and what did he respond? I actually didn't, I don't know what he responded. You don't know what he responded? Summarily executed. Which, of course, would show us why maybe they would be somewhat resistant uh, to, to engage in debate. Um, I think, in addition, uh, there's this whole uh, area of, of theological study called comparative religions. In Judaism, we don't like that term because it shows a certain degree of equivalence between our religion, there's this religion, there's that religion, there's iPhones and there's Androids. You know, they're different, but they're kind of similar. There's a, there, we were very hesitant to do that because you know, we believe that our religion comes from God and it's, it's, it's real. It's, it's, it's every, you know, the prophets are real and the instructions in the Torah is all real. And the other religions, well, they're not. They're made up. They're hoaxes. And the second we kind of agree to equal playing field, it does, in the eyes of certainly onlookers, it does look like, well, there's this and there's that, and they're both, they're both equal. Which is why, and we'll see this actually incidentally in the very next Mishnah, we'll see about the importance of being equipped for having a debate, but not necessarily engaging in debate. You have to know the answer. You don't necessarily have to uh, take on the responsibility of conveying that answer. Just a few more interesting episodes. This is one of my favorite. I was actually on the way here. Uh, I was listening to an old podcast that I, that I gave a couple of years back all about this rabbis and Romans arguing. Uh, so if you want to listen to it, it's on the Jewish History Podcast. It's episode, I don't know, 15 or something like that, or 13, 14, something like that. Um, there, it went through a whole bunch of these kinds of arguments. But one of them I just r- was reminded of. The rabbi was asked the question that there was a tornado in town. And sometimes tornadoes are a little bit indiscriminate. You know, they just, they move in uh, unpredictable ways. So what happened in this particular town is that every building was leveled with the exception of the house of idolatry. That was the only one that survived. So the rabbis asked the question, you see, it works. Obviously, the pagan god is watching out for us. Obviously. Answer it. What are you going to do? Imagine you were forced to answer that on the spot, uh, which is, again, a tactic uh, that was present, prevalent in these kinds of debates where it's not necessarily, okay, let's start with a blank slate. I don't know nothing. You don't know nothing. Let's try to find the truth. It wasn't like that. It was, I have my bias. You have your bias. I'm not willing to ever adopt your position, and you need neither mine, but what, you know, but can I get you? Can I, can I pin you in a corner, ask you a gotcha question, and do a lot trying to answer it, and maybe you'll sound foolish, and even though if you had more time, maybe you could have come up with a better answer, but it doesn't matter, you lost the debate. So this was the question, what are you going to say? So this great rabbi responded off the cuff with a great answer. He said, suppose you had a king that wants to punish his people. He doesn't go to the graveyard and dig up the people that are already dead and punish them. He only punishes, punishes the live people, not the dead people. So the Almighty wanted to punish only the live people. But the house of idolatry, it's so dead. It has no, has no vitality. It's already dead. The Almighty just says, we don't need to punish that. That was his response. <laughs> Uh, there's another um, very, I think, humorous but also insightful episode the Talmud brings in the book of Titus, page 7a, 
uh, where uh, Rabbi Yoshua is actually stationed in Rome. He's in Rome, he's in the palace of the Caesar, and obviously is there an important diplomatic uh, mission for the Jewish people, but he has an interaction with Caesar's daughter. Caesar's daughter asks him a very offensive question. She says to him, well, well Talmud begins with introduction. It says that there's three beverages, there's three drinks that the Torah is compared to. It's compared to milk and to, uh, and to wine and to water. Three drinks. Why these three drinks? Because all these three drinks, they have to be held, they have to be, uh, 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 they have to be uh, ma- uh, carried in certain kinds of vessels. If you put wine in certain kinds of vessels, the wine will spoil or the milk will spoil. But other vessels, the drinks flourish in or they do well in. Similarly, Torah is like these drinks because it needs to be in a vessel. Like the the the, the person who is the har- the person who's harboring the Torah has to be of a certain kind of character, to be a certain kind of vessel in order to properly hold the Torah. That's the introduction. And the story goes. So he's talking to uh, the Caesar's daughter, and the Caesar's daughter tells him. That if your Torah is so beautiful, how come the vessel that's holding it, i.e. you, is so ugly? That's what she tells Rabbi Yeshua. How come you're so ugly? If Torah is so beautiful, why is it being held in this ugly vessel? So he responds by pointing to the huge barrels in the cellar that the king, that this Caesar had. And he says, well, the wine is so important to your dad. But look at these ugly, rotting, moldy, wormy barrels that it's kept in. If the wine is so important, why is it being kept in these disgusting barrels? And she says, you're right. So immediately she tells all their guards, I want you to empty out all these vessels, put it in these gold chalices, silver chalices. It's wine that should be held in a good vessel. And of course, the wine spoiled. And the king, next time he wants a nice drink... He asks for some wine, and they bring him the wine, and it tastes disgusting. It fermented. It's, what happened? Why is my choice wine so distasteful? And they respond, well, your daughter commanded us to take it out of the barrels and put it into these. What? He quickly calls up his daughter. What were you thinking? Well, Rabbi Yeshua told me to do it. Rabbi Yeshua? Okay, he calls it Rabbi Yeshua. And he tells him the whole discussion. He says, listen, I didn't tell her to do it. I just made this analogy and she did it on her own don't blame me and then the roman is is the caesar is sort of intrigued he says well is this really true that 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 the torah is like the wine that it needs to be in this not such a pretty vessel how is that possible i know so many torah scholars that are very beautiful so your your analogy doesn't work if it's like the wine it should be in a more ugly vessel so he responds, yes, there are some Torah scholars that are very beautiful. But if they were ugly, they'd be even greater Torah scholars. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of, end of the study, which is an, like an interesting, it's a humorous anecdote. Uh, but I think there is a lesson there that as bearers of Torah, our vessels, so to speak, who we are as individuals, is going to affect the quality of the Torah within us. We could kind of spoil the Torah if we have bad character. And if we have humility, Moshe is, the, of course, the greatest purveyor of, of Torah ever, and he's the humblest person ever. And that's, of course, not a coincidence, because the Torah can only flourish in certain kinds of vessels. If someone is haughty, essentially they're negating 
the existence of God. Because when someone's haughty and someone's prideful, they're saying, well, I'm it. And that, of course, flies in opposition with the acknowledgement that really God is the one who gives you everything. And in order to be a proper vessel to hold God's Torah, you have to make yourself into someone who is a little bit more humble to be able to accept. And in fact, there's a teaching in the Talmud elsewhere that uh, goes along this, uh, this line of thinking. Torah is like water. In fact, yesterday we read it in the Haftorah. We read about uh, the, the verse quoted over here, the Torah is compared to water. And it says that just like water pools in the lowest point, right? Low, will always drop down with gravity. It pools in the bottom. So too Torah pools in someone who makes himself low. If you make yourself low, if you humble yourself, then the Torah could find its uh, a, a, a place of refuge within you. As opposed to the great mountains, the Torah, of course, just rushes away from them. Just a few more anecdotes here uh, of Rabbi Yeshua's interactions with Roman Caesars. Uh, this one is from Hadrian. And again, the Romans cannot fathom the whole idea of monotheism. It's so strange. It's so exotic that they're asking such basic questions. And he says to them, well, is there a God? Yes, there's a God, of course. Uh, well, let me see him. That's the Hadrian's question. First he tells him, well, you can't see him. Even Moshe couldn't see him. A man cannot see me and live. He says, that doesn't sound uh, very convincing. I want to see him. So he, they takes him outside. According to one version of the story, he tells him to look at the sun, the middle of the summer, midday. According to another version, he just stands with his back to the sun and says, look at me. And in both cases, the, Ro- the Roman Caesar says, well, I can't. The sun is too bright. He says, well, the sun is one of a billion of God's stars. Billion. God has billions. Of stars. This is only one of them. You can't look at God's stars, God's uh, servicemen, so to speak. People who, the things that are there at God's behest. You can't look at that. How do you expect to look at God? There's many other stories. Uh, he would interpret the dreams of the Caesars. He would, in fact, tell the Caesars what they were going to dream. Uh, the Caesar like loved having this guru who knew all the answers. Uh, he would tell me, "Can you tell me? Well, tell me what I'm going to dream about." And uh, Rabbi Shua was able to predict it, not because he was prescient, but he would, he would tell him something so outrageous that the Roman couldn't stop thinking about it the whole day. And of course, we think about by day is what you'll dream about by night. Uh, another story of how he, when he was in Rome, as we know, after the temple's destroyed, there's many Jews who were taken as slaves or as prisoners. And they're all over in marketplaces. And in one of his in one of his trips to Rome, he finds Jewish children, he rescues them, he has a clever quip about Shabbos. Uh, the Roman wants to know why does the Jewish food smell so good on Shabbos? Why is there such a wafting aroma for the Shabbos food? He tells them, Well, there's a special spice that we have that we can't share with you. What do you mean? You can't share the spice with me? You better share it with me or else I kill you. He says, well, the, sh- the spice is called Shabbos. And if you observe Shabbos, then you have the spice. If you don't observe Shabbos, you don't have the spice. You can't possibly have it. Uh, again, there's many, many other stories here um, about great Rabbi Yeshua, uh, a very humble character, great Torah star, one of the giants of the time, uh, a standout statesman and diplomat. Incidentally, someone who also had uh, run in with Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel. Remember last week we talked about Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, there was an, an, two more episodes uh, where Rabbi Gamliel 
acted maybe could have been interpreted as he acted disrespectfully towards Rabbi Yoshua. Uh, there's one episode where there was a question about which day was Rosh Chodesh. Because we know the Jewish calendar, it runs on a lunar month, but a solar year, which is all, creates all kinds of confusion. Uh, we know that the calendar that's used in the world today, the Gregorian calendar, was only like adopted in the 1600s, but then half the world was still using the Julian calendar. So there's like 150 years where half the world had these different dates. It's a huge confusion. Uh, they skipped 20 days also in the middle of the 1600s. They just skipped because they, they had to adapt, you know. But thousands of years ago, the Jews already figured it out. We're still using the same calendar because we actually figured it out. But anyhow, uh, the crux of the matter is that Jewish months are either 29 days long or 30 days long. Because the lunar month is roughly 29 and a half days, slightly more, 29 and a half days, plus 44 minutes, plus a little bit more than three seconds. <laughs> but not too much more, 3.3 or so. Which is, by the way, a figure from the Talmud, it's not mine. The Talmud actually says this, which again shows the incredible scientific knowledge and uh, astronomical knowledge that they knew with respect to halacha. Uh, they will argue that it, this is not something they made up. It came from Moshe at Sinai, which came from God. And, of course, they knew it 2,000 years before NASA figured it out, of course. Anyhow, as an aside. But the way it worked is that every month could either skew longer or would skew shorter, either 29 days or 30 days. And which method would they use to determine which one, which one it was, 29 days or 30 days? It was based upon witnesses, even though they could have figured it out based upon the calculation. But the halacha is, the Torah tells us that you should follow witnesses. Witnesses come to Jerusalem, they say you saw the new moon, because we know the crescent of a, uh, of a waxing moon, it begins as a small sliver on one side, and the waning moon is a small sliver on the other side. And of course, the full moon is like we have today. Today's the middle of the month. Full moon is, that's in the middle of the month. And uh, then it kind of moves in the opposite direction. And then at the end of the month, there's a few days where there is no moon. You can't see a moon. And then it begins, you see a, a new waxing moon. So when the witnesses come, we saw the new moon. They come to Jerusalem, we testify, and we made, mark that day as the first day of the month. But there was an instance where the month of Tishrei, which is the month we're about to begin, the month of Tishrei, there was a debate in the court. Were these people reliable or were they not reliable? And Rabbi Gamaliel accepted their testimony. And therefore, he had Rosh Chodesh on day 30, which means the previous month was 29 days. Rabbi Yeshua disagreed. He says, no, 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 their testimony is invalid. Day 30 is not the first day of the next month. It's the last day of the previous month. And therefore, day 31 is the first day of the next month. You can see how that could possibly happen. Do we believe the witnesses or do we not believe the witnesses? But, of course, if there's a day discrepancy... Then Yom Kippur, according to Rabbi Gamliel, will be 10 days after the first day of the month. And according to Rabbi Shubi, the following day. So which one is it? And again, there is a risk for a schism. If you have half the Jews following this day Yom Kippur and half the Jews following that day Yom Kippur, you don't have Yom Kippur. And once you don't have Yom Kippur, you don't have anything. You don't have any... We ha- is there... Uh, is there the final authority given to the court? So he commands Rabbi Yeshua 
he commands him, I command you to show up to my house on the day that you think is Yom Kippur, which I think is the day after my day of Yom Kippur. Command you to show up with your staff, with your money pouch, i.e. desecrate Yom Kippur, and show that you're accepting the ruling of the Sanhedrin. And he was very distraught, but ultimately he showed up and he said, okay, I'm here. And Rabbi, when he walks in the room, Rabbi Gamliel stands up and kisses him on his forehead. Welcome, my teacher, my student. You're my teacher because you're a great Torah scholar, but you're my student because you adopted my ruling. And then there was a second episode with Rabbi Yeshua. Uh, this time, uh, it was a question about what his position was, and he refused to say. And then Rabbi Gamliel made him stand the whole lecture, and uh, the assembly at Yavne, they thought, well, that seems a little excessive. They deposed Rabbi Gamliel, and they hired someone to replace him as the Nasi. Uh, and eventually, the, the, he was reinstated after he asked forgiveness from Rabbi Yeshua. Uh, and incidentally, we got an interesting story about that. The Talmud says that he came to visit his house. Rabbi Leal is the richest person in the Jewish people. He's the prince. And he goes to visit Rabbi Yeshua to ask forgiveness. And he just sees his house. His house is all black. It's covered with tar, with mud. He couldn't believe that someone's living like this in such squalor. Um, which, again, shows us a little bit of his character. Someone who is just dedicated to Torah uh, is suffering with grinding poverty, but no one knew about it. Uh, He only discovered it once they came to visit him. A very positive, very cheerful, very capable, very uh, admirable, great Torah sage Rabbi Yeshua, one of the great heroes of Jewish history. And he teaches us a very short Mishnah, which we could read in this one sentence. Rabbi Yeshua Omer, Rabbi Yeshua says, Ayin hara, hara, v'sinas habrios, three things, an evil eye, the evil inclination, and hatred of other people, motzian es ha'adam min ha'olam. They remove a person from the world. They extract someone from the world. Now, this particular terminology appears elsewhere in, in, in Pertiavas. So if you turn to, for example, chapter 3, Mishnah 14, late sleeping of the morning, wine drinking of midday, chatter of children, sitting in places of assembly of the unlearned, and the same line, the same refrain, motzian es ha'adam min ha'olam, remove a person from the world. And a third time, this is chapter 4, Mishnah 28, Rabbi Elezer says, hakina, envy, jealousy, Vehataiva and lust. Vehatavod motzian es ha'adam min Remove a person from the world. So, what does this mean? This idea that these three things or these eight things remove a person from. What does it mean? Remove a person from. Well, it seems kind of a very strange idea. We know that we spoke about a a, um, a evil eye. It's, it's being envious of someone else. It's not being content with what you have. It's being upset with what someone else has. It's being desirous of what, so, what someone else has. Yetzahara, that's the evil inclination. That's the lust. That's the desire for sin. And hating other people, that is when someone is not able to see other people. They want all the honor for themselves and not for other people. But what is this idea that they, 
these themes take someone out of the world. They remove someone from the world. So the most common accepted interpretation is that there's certain parameters of society. There's certain kind of ground rules. To be a, a functioning member of society, you have to be within a, within a certain realm, within a certain parameters, within, within certain limitations of behavior. There are certain things, certain behaviors or characteristics that make someone so unwelcome in, 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 in good company that they're like out of the world, that they are not welcome in, in decent society because these characteristics are so bad that they kind of remove someone from the world. That's the most commonly accepted interpretation. I want to suggest a novel interpretation of this theme that we see in Perky Avos, this idea of taking someone out of the world. The Mishnah does not identify which world we're talking about. And, of course, in Jewish philosophy, there's two worlds. There may be more worlds, but two general kinds of worlds. There's the physical world, the one we are presently situated in, and then there's the spiritual world. It could be called the world of the body, the world of the soul, this world, Olamaba, next world, life, afterlife. There's a lot of different names, but there's certainly different categories of worlds. I want to suggest that when the Mishnah says that someone gets removed from the world, it is not referring necessarily to this world, the world we're in today. Rather, it removes someone from the next world, from the spiritual world, from the world of the souls, from Olam Abba. And I want to explain. And there's a few pieces to this idea that kind of are interlocking. So for one, there is a teaching we find in the Talmud, several places, that God recompenses every mitzvah regardless of the aggregate character of its doer. Number one. And God punishes for every sin regardless of the aggregate righteousness of its of its offender. So you have someone who is the most wicked person that you could possibly fathom. They do one mitzvah. For us, that might not register. They're so bad. They're evil. They're a murderer. They're a terrible person. And that mitzvah won't register. It's like, it's so insignificant compared to who they, who they are, who their identity is. Talmud tells us, no, the mind doesn't work like that. Even someone who's a very, the worst sin in the world, their mitzvahs are also, they also matter and they also get rewarded. Number one. On the flip side, someone can be very righteous. They're so righteous. They're such good character. Great Torah scholar. Does everything that's right. But they do one sin or ten sins or whatever. They do a small amount of sins. For us, well, we, we just see things in kind of black and white. They're so righteous. Let's ignore that. God doesn't ignore things. Everything registers. Everything has a consequence. That's idea number one. Idea number two is found in the Talmud in Tainus. It's a very short teaching. Very powerful. It says, it quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. We'll read it in a few weeks. El avel, a God of faith who doesn't do any iniquity. God is fair. God, you can rely on God. God's fair. What does it mean? Says the time. What is the what is the verse teaching us when it says that God is fair and doesn't do any evil? What does that mean? Says the Talmud. Just as 
the wicked are punished in Olam Abba, even for a small minor transgression. So the wicked are punished in the next world for even a small minor transgression. So too, the righteous are punished in this world for even a minor transgression. God's fair. doesn't have different sets of rules. When someone commits a sin, regardless if the righteous or the wicked, God will punish them. However, this is another point here, the venue of the punishment will be, will be different. For the wicked, it's in Olam Abba, it's in the next world. For the righteous, it's in this world. But God's fair. God punishes everyone for their for their misdeeds, and you, there's no protection, as they say in Yiddish. There's no, you can't say, oh, you know, we have a deal, we have a side deal going. No, God's fair. That's the first idea. Vain awful, and there's no iniquity. God's not unfair. What does that mean? Just as God pays reward for the righteous in Olam Abba, even for a minor mitzvah, even the most minor mitzvah, we'll say that's not so significant, even that registers in God, and therefore the righteous gets, gets rewarded in Olam Abba. So too, the wicked are rewarded for even a minor mitzvah in this world. Even the most minor mitzvah and even the most wicked person, if they do a mitzvah, they get rewarded. Okay, so that's the next stage. God does not have any side deals and does not have, doesn't treat, treats everyone the same. It's fair. There's no, there's no, there's no, nothing unfair. The righteous gets rewarded for his mitzvahs, his or her mitzvahs. The righteous gets punished for his or her sins, her sins. And conversely, the wicked gets rewarded for his or her mitzvahs, and the wicked gets punished for his or her sins. That's what the Talmud says. And it's all based on a premise, God is fair. There's nothing unfair about God. That's what the Talmud says. But the venue of the reward and punishment is different. For the righteous, they are punished here and rewarded there. For the wicked, it's opposite. They are rewarded here and punished there. That's what the Talmud says. And I think that there's an obvious fundamental question on this teaching of the Talmud. The whole premise of the Talmud is that, again, based upon a verse, God is fair. There's no skullduggery. There's no chicanery. There's nothing. Everything's fair. God rewards and punishes everyone fairly. But the description of the reward and punishment indicates a lack of fairness. Why? Because the Talmud is very clear that the most minor measure of reward in Olam exceeds the most vast, the grandest reward in this world. And therefore, suppose you have a righteous person and a wicked person. Both do the same mitzvah. Same exact mitzvah. According to the Talmud, God's fair, right? Both of them are rewarded. But the Talmud itself acknowledges that the reward of the righteous is in Olam and the reward of the wicked is here. And therefore, necessarily, by the Talmud's own standards of, of, of measurement, the reward of the righteous is greater for the same exact deed than the reward of the wicked. Because the wicked is rewarded here. He's paid in pesos. And the reward of the righteous is much grander for the same thing. He's paid in kilos of gold. Yes, they're both paid 100, but there's a great difference between 100 pesos and 100 kilo, kilos of gold. So the whole premise of the Talmud is that God's fair, but then there was that, it's, actually, it's actually, there is no equality between the reward for the righteous and for the wicked for the same behavior. That's the question. 
I think the answer is a very deep idea. The answer is that God is fair. God will reward everyone for their deeds. However, God is so fair that he lets us choose which world we want to prioritize and thus make it the venue of our reward and which world we want to not prioritize and thus make it the venue for our punishment. We choose, we want to emphasize this world or we want to emphasize the next world. That, that's our choice. Not only will God reward us and punish us for everything, and he will even let us choose which world we want, how do we want to be paid? You want a check? You want direct deposit? You want cash? You want gold and jewel? Well, how do you want? You want reward in this world? You want in the next world? Again, that's incredible. So fair. And the wicked is someone who is through their behavior, through their actions, saying, demonstrating, exhibiting, I want to be paid in terra firma dollars. And the righteous is saying, I want to be paid in spiritual dollars. And therefore, God is fair and says, okay, I will pay each one in accordance with what they desire. Similarly with the punishment. All that is part of the fairness of God. The reason why the, right, the righteous is righteous is because they are exhibit, they're demonstrating they want, they, they want to prioritize the spiritual world. Okay, God's fair. I'll give you a reward there. The wicked, the reason why they're wicked is because they are ignoring the spiritual. They want to be paid here. God's fair. God will give them the payment over here. So that's the structure of the way I understand this particular particular piece of Talmud. Let's translate that to what Rabbi Yeshua is saying. Rabbi Yeshua is saying there are certain behaviors, certain attitudes that will take someone out of the world. According to our understanding of how this breaks down eschatologically, there are certain areas where a person needs to choose which world they're prioritizing. And in essence, when they choose to prioritize this world, then they're in effect telling God, my reward, I want it here. I'll deal with the punishment later. That's what they're telling God. Conversely, there are instances where someone has the opportunity to go the opposite, to show God, you know what? I prioritize the next world. Let my reward be delivered to me there. What's he saying here? Let's look at these three things. That Rabbi Shua is saying, Ayin hara, the evil eye. What does that mean? It means a person says, what that guy has here, I want. And it hurts me to see him having such a big house, such a nice fancy car, such a whatever. But it, it's something that they have here that I, it's hard for me to see. My eyes hurt, so to speak, seeing how much they have here. What message does that send vis-a-vis the priorities of the worlds? They're saying, I'm so consumed with envy. I'm so covetous of what they have here. In effect, I'm telling God, this is matters. I, wa- I want to be rewarded here. Well, if you do that, you're choosing. You're choosing which world you want to be paid in. And by choosing to be paid in one world, in effect, you're saying, I want this world. But not that world. Similarly, Yetzer Hara, evil inclination. That's a general term for someone seeking physical pleasure. The, the, the underpinnings of the Yetzer Hara is it's the force that makes someone pursue physical, even carnal pleasures 
and to ignore the spiritual realm. That's what the Yetzirah does. So in effect, if someone follows the guidance of the Yetzirah, again, they're choosing, I want pleasure reward here. And they don't realize, says Rabbi Yeshua, what they're telling God. They're telling God, I want to be paid in pesos. I don't want to have the reward waiting for me in Omaba. And God's fear. God will listen to whatever they say. It's fear. And by doing that, they remove themselves uh, from from the next world. And similarly, someone hates other people. Well, why would someone hate other people? Hatred of others underlies a certain degree of competition. It's like, I'm so hateful of their success. It bothers me. It eats me up to see them flourish and to see them having everything so well for them. It eats me up inside and I hate them. I have, All the honor should be mine. It bothers me so much that they have theirs. In effect, that too, says Rabbi Yeshua, that really is someone indicating that their preference of the world, that they want to have their mitzvahs, the minor mitzvahs, the major mitzvahs, they want to have that recompensed, is this one. And therefore, these characteristics remove someone from the world, not from this world, but from, from next world. Because when they get up there, and they say, wait a minute, I did tons of mitzvahs. I have a whole list. There's a million mitzvahs here. And their behavior may unfortunately indicate that they know, no, they don't want to have it all saved there. They want to have it exhausted here. And if it's exhausted here, to the degree that you get paid, you're paid. If the invoice was paid, you can't charge twice. God's fear, after all. Again, this is probably a hard thing for us to be comfortable with because this is pole position. Yeah, this has priority. Like, we start off life in the whole, we start off life, this is the only world that we see and the only world we interact with. You only have a sensory interaction with this world. And you only feel the pain of your body. You don't feel the pain of your soul or you feel it maybe much more delicately. It's much more subtle. It's much more kind of a abstract thing. And I would argue that what Torah really is, the objective of Torah is to kind of orient our priorities and preferences and, and kind of balance the scale at least between how we're existing as a soul and how we're prioritizing our life and our identity as a soul and to bring that at least on par or to amplify that uh, vis-a-vis our soul. And I think this is a powerful idea. If you kind of take this 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 construct of, of how our behavior and how our priorities, they influence the worldview that we're constructing for ourselves. And here he's telling us the consequences of that. And it, it makes a lot of sense. God's fair. And if we tell him we want to be paid in pesos, he's fair and he'll, he'll oblige very much to our own detriment because we don't want to be taken out of that world. But that's, I think, maybe a one way to understand this Mishnah uh, of Rabbi Yeshua. These are themes that take us out of the world because they demonstrate that we are choosing, we're preferring, we're opting, we're optimizing for this world, for the earthly world, in opposition to the spiritual world.